You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey, everyone. Happy Tuesday. I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and I want to welcome you to this live stream this morning. I'm only going to be on here for a few minutes, uh, but if you would like to jump on the chat box on YouTube or on my public page on Facebook, uh, you're more than welcome to and ask me some questions and interact with me uh, during the next few minutes. Now, this live stream was inspired by a frequent viewer of all the things, and she follows me on my public page. And um, it was a good question. Uh, she asked the question, what are your thoughts on breaking fellowship with people over false doctrine? You know, when is enough enough? And I need to go look for a new church. Um, I think it's a good question. And I wasn't sure I could really respond to that quickly in a text message. So I thought, hmm, I bet a lot of other people wonder about this question, too. And so it inspired me to put this uh, little uh, live stream together. So let me give you a couple of scenarios. Let's say that your local church uh, starts teaching or starts platforming or you hear your pastor saying things that sound an awful lot like or they start he starts tweeting quotes by Rob Bell or Jen Hatmaker, Brian Zond, Richard Rohr. What do you do? Are you OK with that? Should that be OK? What what? What are some next steps to take? Or maybe your pastor becomes really enamored with the new perspective on Paul and starts talking a lot about N.T. Wright. Is that a reason to leave your church? What if your church starts doing a lot related to social justice? Should you be worried about that? Is it time to go find a new church? Those are just three possible scenarios that you might run into in a local church situation. So again, uh, when is it time to maybe start looking for a new church uh, or breaking fellowship with a Christian? Okay, so I want to go over some things um, for you to think about. I'm not, as usual, going to tell you exactly what to think. I'm going to try to lead you in a process and give you some tools for how to think this through. And the first thing I want to say is that every Christian has the responsibility to test what they hear their pastor saying or their favorite internet uh, YouTube preacher or whoever they are taking in content from. You have an obligation to be a discerning and active participant in the listening process. For example, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, we read, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Another translation says, hold, um, hold on to that which is true. Um, so we, you know, the Holy Spirit is doing things sometimes. Sometimes he does things we don't understand. But we don't want to quench the spirit. Rather, we want to test the spirit. And we want to test what we are hearing. Here's another good um, passage of scripture for you to reflect on. It's from the book of Acts chapter 17. And in this situation, Paul goes to the city of Berea. And when he arrives, he does his usual routine of going to the Jewish synagogue to bring the gospel. But it has this very interesting description of the Bereans there. 
Now, the Berean Jews were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a prominent number, a prominent number of Greek women and many Greek men. This is an interesting description, an interesting word that Paul uses to describe the Christians at Berea, that they were of a more noble character and that they, they took in the message with great eagerness. They were eager to learn, but they also examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. I love that. We want to emulate the example of the Bereans. We want to be of noble character and we want to examine the scriptures and to be sure that everything that we are being taught is, is true and it's reflected in the scriptures. So that's kind of my first big general point is that we all have a responsibility to develop our minds for the glory of God, to not be passive listeners, but to be engaged. Even if it's a big name pastor, you have an obligation to evaluate, to discern. This was the Apostle Paul that they were, that they were um, examining the scriptures. They were testing what he had to say. So there's no big name that's too big that we should just accept what they say. Um, we need to be engaged. We need to be using our minds and growing our minds and, and thinking about our faith. Okay? So that's kind of my first big point. Now, with that principle in mind, Disagreements are going to happen. We're not all going to see things the same way. Then what do you do? Okay, so let's walk through some steps. Step one, and I think this is a very important first step, and that is to assume the best about the person. Don't panic. Don't assume that the person is falling into progressive theology um, assume that maybe they're not aware of the controversy behind promoting a certain person. Assume the best. And the spirit behind this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it talks about if I speak in tongues of men or of angels and I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecies and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. This is an important passage because sometimes there's people that run around and they're like the doctrine police and, and they're, they're not doing a loving way <laughs> and that's not helpful either. So assume the best. If we can go back to that really quick, I want to finish reading the second part is to know what love is. What does love look like? It is patient, is kind, but notice what it says. It, it keeps no record of wrongs. It is not easily angered. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It hopes for the best. It, it looks for the good in the situation. So again, don't assume that this person is automatically falling into progressive theology just because they, they paste a, a, a quote by Brian Zond on their social media feed. I've had people do that. And I just messaged them privately. Hey, are you aware that these are some of Zond's teachings? They're not falling into progressive theology. They had no idea who Brian Zond was. 
They had no idea of his views on the atonement. And they're like, oh, wow, thank you for telling me. Be, be kind. Assume the best. Help your friends. But um, do it in a kind and gentle way. There's no need to publicly shame people. They just might not know. Okay, step two is do your homework. Research tangible evidence of what people believe. Don't exaggerate. Be fair-minded and clearly and specifically identify the problems. Don't just go by what other people say about this person, even if you respect them. Don't even go by just what I say about someone. Go do your own research. We live in the, the information age. Google is powerful. Go watch some YouTube videos by this person if you have concerns. Do your own research. Verify. Try to see what's going on and make sure that you're you're presenting it in, in a fair way and that you're getting clear about what your concerns are. And then you have to start differentiating. Am I concerned over a core doctrinal issue or a secondary or a denominational issue and, or difference? You know, what is my real concern? This is why you have to get to the point of being very specific. For example, are you concerned that your pastor is teaching progressive theology from the pulpit, then it's possible that core issues of the faith are likely in play because they redefine such critical terms as love and the atonement and, and the crucifixion and, and even the gospel. So that is a more core or central theme. Or are you a Baptist who's attending a Presbyterian church and you're uncomfortable with Presbyterians baptizing babies. Well, well, then you're concerned over a very um, long historical denominational difference. You're not likely to um, change that situation. So you're, you have to kind of think and, and discern carefully of what is my exact concern here? What am I, what is the exact problem that I'm worried about? And this, the question behind this is so important, and that is this. How do we even determine whether a doctrine is a core issue or a secondary issue? This is a very tricky question um, because our tendency is to want to identify as core issues those things that we are the most familiar with. If I've been a Baptist my whole life, I think that all the Baptist distinctives are the core issues. If I've been a Presbyterian my whole life, I might think that all the Presbyterian uh, denominational distinctives are the core issues. It is a very tricky business to try to identify sometimes whether something is a core doctrine or not. So here's a question to help you. And I have a video about this whole question if you want to look for it on my YouTube channel. And that is to ask yourself the question, not just what does the Bible mean by this? What is, what is the interpretation of this passage? We also have to ask the question, what have Christians historically believed about this issue? Um, what is our relationship to church tradition? For many Protestants, the word tradition is almost a bad word. It's like a four-letter word, but it shouldn't be because there are some very helpful traditions Traditions often provide boundaries. They help keep us within the realm of what 
those core doctrines are that Christians have historically believed. So we don't want to vilify our history. We want to understand it and asking ourselves the question, what have Christians historically believed about this? I have found to be an incredibly fruitful question to ask when I'm interpreting scripture. I'm not just interested in looking up what American Protestants have believed in the last 50 years or the last 150 years. Many of us have only ever experienced American Protestantism, and we think that that is the core of the faith. When it's not, we need to have some level of appreciation of a faith that goes back 2,000 years. People didn't just become Christians 50 years ago during the Jesus movement. There were Christians for 2,000 years. So we've got to have some kind of sensibilities and appreciation for that. Also part of the do your homework step, we're still on step two of do your homework, is asking the Holy Spirit for help. Help, have him help you discern, you know, is this a core issue? Is this not a core issue? Don't assume that your position is automatically right. Do your research, do your homework, ask the Holy Spirit for help in differentiating between what the core issue is, what are secondary issues. You're going to probably have to reach out to some some respected experts for help. What this might look like, reading some books on this this topic, maybe asking a friend who's more theologically informed for a book recommendation. But again, be prepared to do your own work. You must discern these things. You must put in the effort, not just relying on what other people say. This step of do your homework might take you a while, and that's okay. As you do it, keep an open mind. Um, sometimes when I have an initial impression about a troubling issue that I that I hear from a teacher, then I research it and I think I realize, okay, my initial impression wasn't warranted. So keep an open mind. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you need to shift your own thinking. Maybe it'll be a learning experience, but do your homework and understand that this could take some time. Okay. Step three is start asking the Lord for an opportunity for a conversation. If you still feel like this is a problem area. If you still feel like, okay, I'm not comfortable with what this church is teaching. I've done my homework. I think it's a core issue. Then start praying for an opportunity to talk to the leadership, have the conversation, do not email, do not text, show the person some dignity and have the face-to-face conversation. In Matthew 18, it says this, that if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And other translations says if they if you're in an offense with them, just do it between the two of you. If they if they listen to you, you have won them over. That should always be our first approach is go have the conversation. But what do we do? Oftentimes we make social media posts, we gossip, we spend a lot of emotional energy getting everybody whipped up including our family members whipped up over this. That's not what we want to be doing. We want to take our time, do our homework, be careful, stay calm, assume the best, and then pray to have the conversation with the right people. And again, take a humble posture. Consider others as more important than yourselves. So you're going to come into it. You're going to have the hard conversation. You're going to do it from a posture of humility. You're going to ask questions. Things like, are you aware that so-and-so teaches such and such? Well, what do you think about 
this issue because you've done your homework. You know your specific concerns. It's not a vague thing. It's not you're relying on other people's statements and other people's research. You know, you are informed. You can ask the important questions. Be very specific. Don't get emotional or upset. Okay, step four. If you can't get to an agreement in, the conf- in that conversation, see what you can agree on. Maybe agree on some next steps to keep the conversation going. Can we have another conversation? Could we both watch a video and then get together again and discuss it or read a book and then discuss it? But your, your overall vision should be to work toward unity, not division. Assume the best. Stay in a posture of working toward unity. Because it says in John 17, these are some of Jesus's last words to his people before he uh, went to the cross. He says, uh, my prayer, he's praying to the Father. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Um, And going down to verse 23, so that they may be brought into complete unity. One of the evidences that Christianity is true, that Jesus is who he says that he, he is, is the unity of his people. We have not done unity well as Protestants. Uh, Here's another scripture from um, Romans chapter 16, verse 17. It says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them. So you don't want to be that divisive person. Paul has a warning for people who just run around being divisive. You want to have an intention of working toward unity. So what does this mean? This means that we don't want to be quick to, to judge people. We want to, remember, assume the best, be up in a posture of love. Remember, the church is Christ's body. Christ loves his church. He's coming back for his church. He has a plan for his church. We will rule and reign with him in eternity. So we need, as God's people, to exercise some wisdom and some prudence when we start making hasty generalizations about Christ's body. And Protestants, quite honestly, are notoriously bad at this. We're notoriously bad at working toward unity. We love to divide. The word protest is right there in our name of Protestant. We are, we have thousands of denominations. And if we don't like something Something doesn't conform to our doctrinal sensibilities. We'll get angry and we'll just go to the church down the street. Um, That's not the greatest system, but that is the world that Protestants have created. There is some wisdom in a more ancient church approach where we're going to be slow to change. We're going to be slow to collectively seek the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit in an effort to keep unity. We're not going to get really super reactive and explosive and upset right away. We're going to take our time. We're going to talk about this. My friends who are Orthodox know that they can't just leave their parish and go to another parish in another town because everybody knows everybody. And if you show up in a parish and they don't know you, the one of the first things they're going to ask is where are you from and who is your priest? Because they are going to validate that 
you haven't just left in a schism. So there, there's some wisdom in the more ancient ways. Now, not to romanticize things here, there are some disadvantages to that system because when your father is your abuser and he's also the town priest, that can get very complicated. But just in general, um, we want to think about how do we not just run into a division? How do we work toward unity? Okay. All right. Step five. We've, we've done our homework. We've tried not to get into an offense super quickly. We've, we're trying to be in a posture of love. We've had the hard conversation with someone in leadership. Okay. Step five is don't gossip, but do ask for a second opinion. This might be the time to get some other people involved. You might need to get some experts in theology involved that, that both parties respect. You might need to see if they can help you move closer to one another. So continuing in the Matthew 18 vein is kind of the next step. If you can't resolve it in a one-on-one situation, you do the next step, which is you take two or three others along so that the truth of the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is a very biblical principle. It goes all the way back to the Mosaic law. It's repeated several times in the New Testament that God's standard of justice and establishing truth is through witnesses. So you might have to get some other people involved. You might have to get some respected voices to see if they can move you guys closer together because maybe you're not understanding something. Don't assume that it's all in the other person that they're not understanding something. How motivated are you to try to keep unity? Um, and there might be some hard feedback there for you that you might need to accept of, have you been acting in a divisive way? Have you acted in a gossipy way? Have you written some things on social media um, that have caused a lot of division? And so there's things that you might need to check with the Lord or receive difficult feedback from the other person about how you're showing up for the conversations. But historically, when there was doctrinal disputes in the church, they were debated and studied over a long period of time involving multiple people. This was the pattern of historical councils. It wasn't just one person gets upset, they go have a terse conversation, and then they leave. There was, there was a commitment to unity. Division was a last resort, okay? Schism was a last resort after we've tried many, many steps to stay unified. Now, if you can't get to agreement, you've done all these steps and you just can't get to agreement, then you're going to have some tougher choices. Then what do you do? Well, if you are the person in authority, in other words, you're a pastor or an elder, it's going to depend on how grievous the doctrinal error is. If you have somebody in your church who's teaching something that threatens core doctrine, then that's going to have to be a conversation of moving to the next step in Matthew 18 of if they still refuse to listen after some experts have been involved and there's been two or three witnesses, if it's still a hard situation, um, we're going to have to go to the next step. You're going to have to tell it to the church. You're going to have to take some steps to help protect your flock from false doctrine. And, you know, that's going to look different at different churches, but that's part of your job as the shepherd is to discern what's happening. Now, if it's a secondary issue, 
you can talk to the person about maybe just not talking about it in public or around people from the church or whatever. Try to explore options that will lead to unity. Okay. Um, now, if the if you're not in leadership and you have concerns about what the leadership is teaching, then you have to make the hard decision of possibly finding another church home. Um, if the position of the church leadership doesn't seem likely to change, then you're going to have to ask yourself some questions. Things like, what contribution have I made to this division? Is there anything that I need to ask for forgiveness for? Um, if the church leadership, again, doesn't seem likely to shift their position, you'll need to decide if you have enough influence that maybe staying, there's there's benefit to staying. Maybe you can influence others and eventually a change can come around. Um, sometimes that takes time. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it never happens. And that will be a conversation for you to have with the Lord about what he wants you to do. If you don't have much influence in the church, um, I think that the best thing to do is to get into a conversation with the Holy Spirit. I mean, even if you have influence and even if you are a pastor, always do this, is get into a conversation with the Holy Spirit about what to do. I am not here to tell you that you should leave your church, but if the Holy Spirit leads you away from your church or even just temporarily and tells you you need to find a new fellowship, then obey that. But but make that your last resort. Make that, you know, something that you do uh, after you've taken all of these other steps to try to preserve unity. Because again, our goal is not division, it's unity. You also have to consider how leaving a church will impact your other family members. Just because you don't feel comfortable with something, you don't want to cause division in your family. If it's causing division with you and your spouse, that's something to consider. If it starts causing division between you and your kids, if your kids are really plugged in at the church, you're going to have to weigh that out as to how disruptive is it going to be for them to go to another church? Um, are there things that that you need to talk through with them about why a change is happening? There's a lot of things to consider, and it's it's hard. It's hard to leave a church sometimes, and sometimes that can be a great loss. So those are some things to consider in your journey. And again, the most important thing is to be in a conversation with the Holy Spirit about it. Um, now, a couple words of caution. Um, when doctrinal issues are in play, I've noticed that there's a tendency that everybody in the equation thinks that they're Jesus overturning the money changers in the temple. Everyone says, well, I need to go in and have some doctrinal discernment. I need to overturn the system and overturn the money changers just like Jesus. Um, or everyone thinks that they're Paul confronting Peter. Uh, no, you're, you're not. <laughs> um, that's not what we want to be doing. Uh, there are so many scriptures. I've showed you a few in this video that talk about working toward unity, trying to love each other. The, there, there's no verse that I can find that says, you be like Jesus, you go overturn the money changers. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things about that passage I don't understand. And I don't want to be in some knee-jerk situation of, hey, I think that I have all the discernment and judgment. I'm going to be jury and judge and uh, make these pronouncements over people. 
We want to be slow to anger, scripture says. We want to be slow to come to conclusions. We want to be very careful. We don't want to engage in gossip or division. Now, are there times when division has to happen? Yes, there are. When core doctrines are in play, when we have done our homework and we have carefully identified what the core issues are, and that's in alignment with what Christians have historically believed, yes, sometimes we must part company with people, but we want to spend as much effort as we can having hard conversations and working toward unity. We don't want it to be a fake plastic banana unity where we're just not going to talk about our differences and it's not loving to talk about doctrine and, and dis- doctrinal disagreements. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about real genuine unity that is unified in the knowledge of Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter four. Should have read that scripture, but that's okay. I didn't uh, plan ahead for that. But that is the basis and foundation of our genuine unity is doctrinal unity. Now, one thing I did not address in this video that I've addressed in other videos is that of church hurts. And whether you leave a church because you've been hurt, it's kind of a separate issue. I'm mostly in this video addressing doctrinal concerns. But if you have suffered church hurt, um, that can be a very painful and difficult situation. But you want to be very careful about dividing from your church over a church hurt. Um, and because a, someone has personally hurt you, that's not always the best reason to leave unless it's an abusive or severely unhealthy environment. But again, that's kind of a separate issue. I have some videos on my channel about uh, church. I think it's called church problems, something like that. And uh, you can check that out. All right, so Daniel wants to know, what about speaking in tongues? Um, The reason why I'm afraid of it is because my wife and me heard demons talking in unknown tongues in a Pentecostal church. Okay, yeah, I don't know if I've ever done a video about about tongues per se. Well, let me give a quick answer. Maybe I'll think about putting something together on a longer teaching about it. But um, there's different kinds of tongues mentioned in Scripture, uh, there's, that word is used three different ways in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, it seems to be used as human languages. If you look in Acts chapter 2, for example, on the day of Pentecost, it seems clear in the context they're talking about human languages. When you get to 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, there's one brief verse that there's the, the, the angelic language, the tongues of angels, Gives us no explanation as to what that is, but apparently it's a thing. And there also does seem to be a reference to a prayer language um, that people would would pray. So I'm not completely opposed to the idea of people having a prayer language. Um, if they do, in my opinion, that's between them and God. Um, but I have in my work in deliverance ministry also seen how the enemy can sometimes hijack people's prayer language. And it does seem to be demonic. That's not to say again, that I think that all tongues or people's prayer language is demonic. I think some people do have a prayer language that God gives them as a gift. Um, But I think that um, it sometimes can also get hijacked by demons. So that's my short answer to that.
Okay, everyone, I want to thank you for watching the live stream. And I do look forward to your comments throughout the day on your reactions to this video on church unity. And I hope that you found it helpful. Thanks so much. God bless.